Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, Happy New Year's Eve to you. I hope you're doing, doing well today, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I hope you all had a, just a really great celebration um, of our Lord's birth at Christmas and got to maybe hang out with some family and friends and uh, enjoy that season. You know, I, I am praying that we uh, are going to see and tangibly experience the presence and the blessing of God in 2024 like we've never seen before. That's one of the things I'm asking God for. So today I think a great way to end this 2023 year and get a good jump on 2024 is for us to do this today. I want us to make much of Jesus. Are you with me on that? That just in our lives we would make a great deal of Jesus. And I'm praying in the new year that we will all enter it with a, either a new or a renewed confidence in, in Jesus. And so I want to come at that idea today, maybe a little differently than I often do. Instead of thinking about his divinity, today I want us to focus on the humanity of, of Jesus. Um, and I need to credit someone. Uh, I read a book this past year uh, by John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite authors. It's entitled, Who Is This Man? Highly commend the book to you. It's a great book. And um, this, this kind of idea uh, came from, from my reading uh, of this book. And friends, there has never been another human who's come close to Jesus' influence in absolutely every sphere of humanity. One of Jesus' most favorite titles for himself that he would call himself was the Son of Man. See, Jesus was deeply connected to his own humanity. He was more fully human than anyone who's ever lived. Uh, his humanity has impacted our humanity in incredible ways. And let me just give you maybe some examples of what I mean before we dive in more fully and deep. You know, in the Bible Belt, when I hear people talk about um, the, the other coast, uh, one of the things that will get talked about is the state of California as being this kind of liberal and maybe decadent place is the way some people will phrase it and, and think about it. And, um, but I want you to think just very briefly, quickly, just about one way that Jesus uh, impacts uh, our world uh, in this day. Um, there's a, a city that is in the news a lot these days in California called San Francisco. Do you know where San Francisco gets its name? From St. Francis of Assisi. And it was named after him because of his spirit of generosity and great love. It, it inspired the naming of that city. And uh, guess who inspired St. Francis in all that he did? Jesus. On the other end of that bay, San Francisco is kind of the northern end. On the other end of that bay is another uh, city called San Jose. And it is named after a guy named St. Joseph. And St. Joseph was a devoted follower of Jesus, and they honored him by naming that city after him. But he, he wanted all glory to always go to Jesus. 
Anybody know the, the, the capital of the state of California? Sacramento, very good. You get, you get Geography of the Day Award. Um, the, uh, it, it's Sacramento. You know where that name comes from? It comes from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The most famous meal that was ever you know, taken and celebrated by humans because it was this self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It became the moment of inspiration. And Sacramento is named because of that. Friends, you can't look at a map all around the world, quite frankly, without being reminded of the life of Jesus. See, the impact of Jesus' life is so deep that his birth remains the most celebrated birth in all the earth. Do you know who number two is? I, I don't either. It doesn't matter. There's not a, a close second. You know, it just it doesn't matter. Nobody's close. One of his sermons, just one, one talk that he gave, his Sermon on the Mount, is the most quoted, most studied, most famous, influential of all human talks in all of human history. More books have been written about that one talk that Jesus gave. Nothing else even comes close to it. You know, even the device of torture that his enemies used to kill him on, the cross, adorns more grave markers. It adorns more jewelry. It is probably, and I would say, uh, I think I can say this confidently, the most famous symbol, uh, branding tool, if you would, uh, that's ever existed. And his movement continues today, 2,000 years later. In his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, a Yale historian wrote these words. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. So here's the deal. Whether you believe, he's, whether you believe there is a God or not, whether you think that you know, anybody could ever be divine, you have to at least consider the life of Jesus, that, that baby that was born, it placed in, in that manger. He was human. He was, became a real child. He grew up. He was born. He lived. He died. We have to really think seriously about that song we just sang, What Child Is This? So I want to point out some other, what I think are very important, influential aspects of his life. Because, quite frankly... Given his start, it would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world the way and impact it the way that Jesus had. Because he never held an office. Um, he, he never led an army. He never wrote a book that we're aware of. He never traveled abroad. And yet, 2,000 years later, it's absolutely impossible to imagine our world without him. So, let's examine all that this child gave to humanity. This child gave the world its most important influential movement. Of all the movements that have ever graced this planet, it was the church. I want you to just think for a moment, a world with no church. And there's some tangible things. No, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral or St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. No, no little church maybe on the corner in that community you grew up in. No, no house church in China. Uh, no church in Charleston. No River Bluff. None of the people of the church that you know, imagine a world without Mary or, or, or Paul or Peter or Timothy or Augustine or 
Aquinas or Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or, or Diedrich Bonhoeffer, no Joan of Arc, no, no John Milton or John Wesley or John Bunyan or John Calvin or John the Baptist or John Miller or John Ross or you, you get the, those last two are members of our church, just so you know. But let's go back to the beginning of the idea of, of the church. See, in the ancient world, there were, there were nations, there were families, there were, there were ethnic groups, there were, there were guilds, work guilds, there were tribal religions, there were schools of philosophy, but the church never fit neatly into any of those categories. And when Paul, who became one of the great spokesmen of the church at its inception shortly after, uh, in he would say things like we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossae, he would say something very similar, but he would end with this phrase. But Christ is all and in all. And I want us to think about that today. In all of humanity, Christ is all and in all. Anybody ever been to Disney World? You ever rode that ride that gets that song stuck in your head? It's a small world after all. Now you're stuck with it the rest of the day. I'm sorry, but just my gift to you in the new year. But that, that ride is all about people of every nationality, every ethnic group and culture, status, being all together. Now, here's, here's a history question about about that idea. Before the church, where was a movement that actually sought to include every single human being, regardless of ethnicity or status or language or wealth or, 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 or gender, to be loved and to be transformed? Not only had there never been a community like that before the church, the idea never existed until Jesus birthed the idea when he said he would build his church. By the way, just in, in our day, so that you get kind of captured in a very tangible way about this, you know, th there's a, a movement called the 12-step movement. And the 12-step movement kind of was birthed out of a group called the Oxford Group about a century ago. Um, and these were, these were folks who were battling addictions and they were, they were attempting to recapture the practices of the first followers of Jesus and trying to birth it into the modern era. And so if there was no Jesus, there would not be this 12-step recovery movement. And I'm just trying to show you that in the context of his history. See, the vision for radical community began with this impoverished carpenter. What child is this is a question we've got to wrestle with. He, he gave us the most influential movement in all of humanity. But that's not all. This child also changed the way the whole world looks at human history. Now, in our world leading up to his birth and a short while later, world events were normally dated by whoever was kind of the, the, the global ruler of the day, if you would. And so there would be a year where, you know, it was the reign of Caesar Augustus or it was the reign of Artaxerxes or who, whoever happened to be in power that, at that time and all the Caesars there, you know, time was kind of centered around them. But eventually, the Caesar's power lost grip 
in the hearts and minds of people. That, that faded away while this other vision continued to gather and, and grow strangely more compelling in the hearts and minds of people until finally in the 6th century, uh, a monk proposed a new calendar that no longer centered around the founding of Rome, but on the birth of a man named Jesus. And I don't know that a lot of people are captured by, by this thought, but the creation of the calendar was not just some type of chronological convenience. It wasn't just something so you knew when to, you know, to make that eye appointment or anything else. It was a claim that was being made when this calendar was brought into existence. See, it was an idea that life is not some random cycle. It's not a wheel of fortune that life actually has meaning, that it's a story, that it is his story, that it's going somewhere, and that the critical hinge of all of human history is Jesus. And he lived, and he died. And the Caesar who was ruling in Rome more than likely never even had a hint of his existence, but a few decades after his death and resurrection, his disciple John would write these words we read in Revelation 17 that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Now, maybe you've heard those words in, in something like the Hallelujah Chorus, or, uh, and, and, and it does have kind of a poetic ring to it, but it's not just a, it's not just a poem. It's not just words. It's a claim. It's claiming that if you take all the kings and all the power brokers and all the CEOs and all the media influencers and put them all in one group, Jesus is king over them all. And he's not just a king. He's not just the greatest king. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the CEO of CEOs, the influencer of influencers. And you got to understand, contextually, in the first century, when the apostle John wrote those words, there were, the, the band of followers for Jesus was still tiny, they were insignificant in the eyes of the world. And so that claim that was being made was in some ways laughable. You know, if you had been around back then and you were betting on what, you know, what's going to last longer, Jesus' movement or the Roman Empire, nobody was betting on the carpenter from Nazareth. No, nobody was. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we, you know what, we still give our children names like John and Mary and Peter and Paul. You know what we name our dogs? Caesar and Nero. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic change. You know, how, how does that happen? Let's say for just a minute that someone gives you the assignment. I want you to live your life in such a way that after you die, the human race will divide all of human history before your life and after your life. How would you go about trying to make that happen? That child's life did. 2,000 years after his birth, every time a human being, any place on the planet, looks at today's date, we're reminded of the day that this man became the hinge of all human history. You know, Caesar Nero died. Here's the things that get interesting to me. Every great leader that died after Jesus and this new calendar came into play, we would refer to it like this. Ciro, uh, Caesar Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68 AD. And 
The Emperor Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821. And Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. See, Jesus walked among us. And when he did, he didn't look like the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings. But isn't it awesome now that every ruler who lives and his reign is always marked by the date of our Lord. Every nation that rises, everything gets referenced around the name of Jesus. we got to wrestle with what child is this. See, this child changed how the world looked at, at human history. But this child not only did that, he also reshaped how the human experience, uh, how we experience and express compassion. How we come at compassion. See, most, most every human being, not, not everyone, but most every human being has at least some capacity for compassion. But Jesus really changed the way that culture and the world and society even looked at it and talked about it. See, in the ancient world, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they, they weren't absent of compassion. But it was generally only the, the noble, the, the, the strong, the wealthy who were ever thought much of. The rich, you know, they, were, they would do things like give money for public work. So a huge building might be built. And, you know, there was a whole phrase around this called monumentalism. Uh, so that, it, you know, so that their greatness could be expressed. It was the way of showing how impressive their lives were. So the weak and the marginal, they were, they were never valued whatsoever. One first century Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote this about his culture. We drowned children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. Now, friends, that wasn't an expression of sorrow or embarrassment. It wasn't like, it, that wouldn't have even been a controversial statement uh, in, in that day. That was just, that was how the world worked. And that's just how people were regarded in that ancient world. A child could just be left to die of, of exposure. And it was usually a child that was born the wrong gender or with some abnormality. But the followers of Jesus remembered that Jesus had said, recorded in Matthew 19, let the little children come to me. And so they actually took in these abandoned children. And they began the practice that became known as godparents who would literally care for, in the name of God, would care for children who maybe had been abandoned or their parents had died. And that happened a lot in the ancient world. And then they began building orphanages. And, and these changes so powerfully kind of overtook that culture, this movement in the church, that one professor of church history wrote these words just in the title of his book. I just want to read you the title of the book. It was a fascinating title. When Children Become People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. And the book points that out in, in the, the name of Jesus, how children became valued. And he points out that Jesus is the first person uh, in recorded history to ever say something like uh, he did in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bucky says that Jesus is the first person to point to children as kind of an image of what true, deep spiritual life would look like in a day when normally they were considered kind of disposable. 
Widows in that culture were considered by the Roman government, at least, to be kind of a drag on society, you know? But they were taken in and cared for by the church because they remembered what Jesus had said to his disciple John as he hung on the cross. It's recorded in John 19. He told John to care for his mother, take care of her. In the first three centuries of the church, the first 300 years after the birth of the church, there were two incredibly major pandemics that in some sections of the known world would destroy about one-third of the populations. I don't know if you could imagine what it would be like for one-third of the people living in the low country to be wiped out. But in the ancient world, it created such a panic in, in the population that Dionysus of Alexandria wrote these words to describe what, what took place. He said, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest throwing them into the roads before they were dead, treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Now, in his book, and it's a great read, I would encourage you to read it, it's called The Rise of Christianity. It's written by Rodney Stark, but he writes about how that moment in time, historically, was one of the most influential moments in the growth of the church because this strange little community of Christ followers would bring those six folks that they literally found laying out in the road, they'd bring them into their homes. They weren't related to them. They had really no connection to them, but they would bring them in. Even, even at the risk of their own death, they would care for them and nurse them back to health. And the testimony that they gave for doing such things was because Jesus, the one they followed, touched lepers and he would seek out the blind and the lame and the deaf in order to to bring healing to show compassion and he would say like he did in Matthew 25 whatever you do for the least of these you do for me somehow the presence of Jesus exists powerfully in the least of these so that by the first century what had really began to to form uh was a hospital. Uh, some of you are familiar with the name St. Benedict. He, he actually created, if you will, and built the first hospital so that by the 6th century, in monasteries all over kind of the land, hospitals began to be attached to these monasteries. And over time, this idea that we should be compassionate to everyone began to, began to grow, to take root. So much so that by the time uh, in you know, kind of in modern day when the Geneva Convention got organized and they were looking for a symbol to kind of symbolize their efforts to alleviate human suffering, guess what they came up with? The Red Cross. The cross of, the cross of Christ. See, anytime you hear names attached to hospitals like the Good Shepherd or St. Anthony's or, you know, Good Samaritan, what you're, what you're seeing, you're seeing the fingerprints of Jesus, the man, the life that was lived, Jesus, you know, to the autistic and Down syndrome and disabled, those who battle with mental illness or the broken, in, in the day of our ancient ancestors, 
they were thought of as burdens to be discarded. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, some of those ancient cultures had a lot of splendor and beauty to them, but they were also, they could be quite cruel. So for someone in, in that day, instead of seeing even the most broken human being as being someone who is worthy of human dignity, who actually carries the image of God, the divine glory of God, you know, so that we are drawn to them, that didn't happen until Jesus. Now, please hear me say this. This is not to say that, that all Christians and the church, you know, uh, world, that others can't be compassionate because they can be. And quite frankly, at, at times, church and the people of God had, have been far from it. We fall short of that because it doesn't have anything to do with us being good. It's not what it's about. It, it's about Jesus. But one philosophy professor, Mark Nelson, put it this way. He said, if you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion? He says, I would suggest wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. It's from Jesus. What child is this? You know, that he reshaped how humanity experiences and expresses even compassion. But that's not all. He, he also had this incredible impact on learning and education. See, his movement has touched and strongly shaped education globally. Now, the truth is human beings have always learned, love to learn. Um, the, the, the whole concept of homo sapien means wise ones, wise human is, is literally what it means. But in the Greco-Roman world, the only people for whom education was a possibility would be uh, wealthy male children. But in this new community that was birthed, this, this church, they remembered one who taught everyone and one who told them to go out and teach everybody. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, go and teach everyone to obey everything I have commanded you. And so guess what? They did. They began to teach men and women, slaves and free, so that by the time the fourth century kind of rolled in, Jesus' followers had created this kind of monastic communities, and for several centuries, the only place where learning took place was in these kinds of communities. And, you know, they studied the scripture and biblical studies, but they, they even kept alive some of the pagan writings. See, if you've ever heard of the book or maybe read the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill, that's what that story's about, is how that whole thing took place. And then churches began building schools, and then they began building universities. That's how universities got their start, were from, from churches, so that the first real university that got birth was uh, the, the University of Paris in the 12th century, and then Cambridge came, and, and Oxford, and uh, you may or may not know this, but the motto of Oxford even today is, the Lord is my light. Jesus' fingerprint is still there, and eventually over in the States, schools like Harvard and Yale, and on and on and on. When, when the Reformation came, the idea that every individual ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves, it ignited something 
in education. It ignited a dream of universal literacy. This was really fascinating to me when I read this. Back in colonial America, in 1647 in Massachusetts, the first law was passed requiring the uh, funding for mass education of children. Listen to the name of the act. It, it was, it's really interesting. It's called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Here's why. Because they believe that the evil one wanted to keep people in ignorance. And they remembered that Jesus said, go teach everybody. And so they said, we're not going to be just concerned with our own children. We want to give everybody, every child, an opportunity to learn so that they can learn to honor Jesus. That's what the literacy movement was all about. And friends, it's one of the reasons our church is still involved in the literacy movement in the local school. Because we believe that every child ought to be able to learn to read and have access to reading the Gospels one day. Again, just from human history. The formation of alphabets. Uh, some of you have heard maybe of the Cyrillic alphabet. The Cyrillic alphabet came about because uh, a guy went to be on mission as a missionary named Cyril to the Slavic peoples. And when he got there, they had no written language. And he knew the only way that they would all ever be able to have access to the gospel was for them to first be able to, to read. So he created from their language, their oral language, a written alphabet and began, began teaching it. And then nation after nation, it was followers of Jesus who came in and did the same kind of thing. Would find languages that had no written language to it and they would create an alphabet so that the gospel could be read, God's word could be read. The first if you will, language scientists that ever came, came as followers of Jesus. And they did it because they wanted the word of God to hit the hearts of every human being, that the gospel story of Jesus would go out. And go out it did. The gospels of Jesus have now been translated in over 2,200 languages. Nothing else comes close to that. The gospels of, of Jesus. And it's, it's just kind of incredible. And here's something that's interesting about that, to me anyway, is we don't know that Jesus actually ever wrote a single word. It's not recorded anywhere that Jesus ever wrote a word. Now, we know that he drew something in the sand one day, but we don't know if it was a word. There's been speculation. But there's no record in the Gospels that Jesus ever wrote anything down. But his influence on education and literacy is unmatched. What child is this? And we could talk about how his life radically shaped the art world and the music world. I don't have time for that one and, and several others. But I do, do want to touch two more before we close. Because this one is, it, it needs a fresh touch from Jesus. See, this child also completely transformed political theory. In Luke chapter 20, verse 25... It's recorded that Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Now, in that day, in Caesar's mind, it would have never come to, as a thought, that there was something that didn't belong to him. But Jesus was declaring it to be, it to be so. And friends, we deeply need the impact of Jesus in our social sphere of politics today. 
Sociologist James Hunter writes something to me that's fascinating. He says that when a society is healthy, lots of human spheres flourish. Art, education, philanthropy, religion. But when it fractures, everybody gravitates towards political power because politics is the only sphere that offers coercion. The power of the sword. You know, thinking, well, we can make people do stuff. And so people start to think if you're going to be relevant, the only way to be relevant is to be political. And even the church gets sucked in to that, thinking we must have that kind of power. Because if we have political power, then we can legislate and we can make them do what we want them to do. And then we can be the winners. And, and Jesus understood that there are severe limits to only being able to coerce Somebody's body, which is so finite. That's why he went after their hearts and their minds and their souls. See, this is a much higher calling, which is why Jesus one day, when facing one of the most powerful political leaders in his part of the world, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Because they didn't get it. And this became one of the most influential statements in political history. See, until that time, it was assumed that the state kind of had franchise over all religions. But Jesus' followers were raised up like Augustine and Luther and John Locke. And from them, this idea of limited government began to be birthed. That kings actually had to answer to a higher power. That coercion is not the ultimate form of power. That the, sh- the state shouldn't control religion and the religion shouldn't control the state. And in his whole lifetime, Jesus, Jesus, did you know Jesus only participated in one election and he lost? Did you know that? That Jesus lost an election when the people said, give us Barabbas. He lost that, that election on that day. But isn't it ironic that 2,000 years later, all of Rome's defenders and all of Rome's opponents are kind of, you know, they're kind of tossed on the dustbin of history. But the kingdom of Jesus continues in our day to grow and give life. See, he, he changed kind of politics in his day. What child is this? This child also radically formed Uh, reformed how we think about human dignity showing us that every single life has great value and worth tell me if you recognize these words we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights anybody recognize that declaration of independence Thomas Jefferson, you know, said these truths are self-evident. But I don't know that they always have been for everyone. I don't think they were self-evident to Attila the Hun. I don't think they were necessarily self-evident to Nero or Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. You can name hundreds of other human rulers and systems that have been, been built. And this idea doesn't seem to have been self-evident through much of human history see that that's an idea and every idea comes from somewhere from from someone 
There's another idea that you hear often in our world, not, not only from people who are followers of Jesus, but you'll hear people say, well, I believe in a God of love. Well, that idea came from somewhere, from someone. I, I challenge you to go read in ancient manuscripts, ancient writings. I don't think you're going to find anywhere where somebody said, I love Zeus. Or I love, you know, Thor. Or I love, you know, any, any gods like that. There, there wasn't the idea of love attached. It was just simply fear. It was Jesus who brought from the nation of Israel that there, the idea that there is only one God and he is a God of love. I, I, I love to watch my grandchildren get excited about their dad. If their dad's going to come get them. Uh, my son-in-law, Andrew, um, is, is a big man. In, in all of our family pictures, his favorite song to sing is one of these things that's not like the other. Because, you know, we're all like 5'5", five, five, and he's 6 plus. And, uh, but he, he's this gentle, spirited guy that, that loves his kids. And my, my grandkids adore him. And he's that kind of father. And Jesus was the first to come and teach. That's what God's like. He's like this all-powerful, gentle, loving father who, who pursues in love even his most wayward and stubborn child. He'll pursue them in love. And see, this great love for everyone that God has has serious implications. And that's why Paul was able to write to say there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's, you know, not male or female. For you were all one in Christ. But too often, supposedly Christian people or Christian nations or even churches violate this law of Jesus' love in horrible ways. But fascinatingly, the power of Jesus has the ability to break through even that and, and be found in movements like the abolition movements, which got led by many Christians. See, Jesus uniquely taught, love your enemies. See, that, that's another idea, just a whole other idea, that you're, to, love, to love your enemy is not human nature. In fact, one, one little monograph that was written in ancient Rome, it was simply titled this, Loving Friends, Hurting Enemies. How's that for a title of a book, you know? Because that's what they admired. They, they just admired that somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. But there was this man who said, turn the other cheek. If somebody compels you by law to go one mile, go with two. If they take your cloak... Offer them your shirt as well. And, and to, to this man, those weren't just words. They were, they were his life. So much so that when he died hanging on that cruel cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They, they have no idea what they're doing. And, and that, that kind of message marked those who followed him. So much so that they would, they would also be killed. In very dramatic ways, some of them. We're told by a Roman historian, Tactius, that, uh, I want to read this to you. It says, 
when that happened, the, the death of many Christians, it said mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames. Many of you know that Nero would take followers of Jesus. He would cover them in, in, in pitch and use them as human torches, the light gladiator games. And that, that practice continued literally for hundreds of years. And the response of Christ's followers was not to you know, take up arms and have a revolt, but to, to pray for Nero, to pray for their persecutors. How do you stop people like that? You don't. You don't stop the movement of Christ. See, this is unique in association with Jesus as a love for enemies. It just became so strong that even those who do not name the name of Jesus personally, uh, there is a Princeton historian named Hannah Hart who herself didn't confess Christ, but she wrote these words. She said, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. What child is this? You know, if, if the only thing that you ever did was simply regard Jesus as a man, how do you explain his life's impact? How, how do you explain it? Jesus inspired so many. Jesus inspired a man by the name of Tolstoy, and he wrote a book entitled Resurrection. And that book inspired a movement that got launched by a lawyer named Gandhi. And Gandhi um, was one of the last people before he died that Tolstoy wrote to. And in, in the letter, he was praising the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus of Nazareth. In his most famous speech, probably the most famous speech of the 20th century... Martin Luther King had this speech all written out, was prepared, was delivering it. And he stopped because he had this thought come to mind. It was from the old prophet Amos that says, Justice is going to roll like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And when he stopped and, and quoted that Old Testament passage, the crowd started, started shouting back, Tell it, brother. Amen. You know, like, like, like a church crowd would do. N not this church, but you know, some churches. And he kind of got off track, off, off his script, and he didn't know kind of how to go back to it. And Mahalia Jackson was on the stage with him that day, and she shouted to him, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so Martin Luther King Jr. started with these words, I have a dream. I have a dream of a world that is, isn't yet, but one day will be where every human being will be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, where the sons and daughters of former slaves sit down with slave owners and will join hands, and we will all be one. You know where that dream got birthed? At Pentecost. It was born that day, but it had been proclaimed from Jesus. It was birthed from our Lord and Savior, Jesus. That was the church. All of those things about this child's life are amazing. But here's the last one that I want us to think about. It's amazing that Jesus changed lives 2,000 years ago. But this child is still changing lives. This child that came is changing lives 
in our generation, still, still today. Some of you may have seen the movie about World War II hero and Olympian Louis Zamperini, that his life was about to be destroyed by alcohol, and Jesus saved him. Some of you are familiar with, you remember President Richard Nixon's fall from grace, you know, and he had this legal advisor named Chuck Colson who ended up going to jail for, you know, his implications in all of that. And while in prison, Chuck Colson came to know the saving grace of Jesus. There was this little Sunday school teacher named Rosa Park. She was sitting on a bus and people were telling her she had to move to the back of the bus because she was black. But Jesus, she says, gave her the power not to do it. There are addicts in our day who are finding sobriety in the name of Jesus. There are marriages that are being, uh, that were falling apart that are being renewed in the name of Jesus. Really troubled people find peace in the name of Jesus. Dying people find hope in the name of Jesus. And I, I can't not say this. By the way, today, if you call on him, he can change your life. I don't know of you, all of you who are here, but if you want to become his follower, if you want that great life to impact yours, if you want to learn about him, if you want to surrender to him, if you want to put him in charge of your life to receive his grace and his mercy and eternal life, a gift, you can do it right now. You can just stop and pray and say, Jesus, I want you. I give you my life. I choose to follow you. And forgiveness can be yours. See, it's a huge question. We sang it. What child is this? What child is this? Well, here's what we've seen. He's the hinge of human history. He's the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the greatest teacher who ever taught. He's the greatest thinker who ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given to human beings. He launched the greatest movement ever known. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He grows more present with us in every passing day. He's the Son of God and the great glory of mankind. He's that crucified carpenter from Nazareth. He's the hope of the nations. He's the savior of the world. And he is my savior. And he is my Lord. And he is my God. And he is my friend. And I know he is for many of you too. And if he's not, he can be if you'll let him. And so what I want to do right now is I want to pray in his name to him. And I'm going to ask you if you're somebody for whom he is their Savior and Lord and friend. Or if you want him to be. I'm going to ask you to stand now and pray with me. Let's pray together. Jesus, when we stop and think about the impact of your life on humanity as a whole. It blows us away. Our minds 
can't even contain it all. We're just in awe, Jesus. And so we come as your people. We come gathered in your name, wanting to magnify that great name. Realizing once again that you are the only begotten Son of God come to life, but you came in human form. You were perfectly, fully human. And you showed us what a human life lived for the glory of God could be. You modeled it for us, Jesus. And so we come to you again this day, praising you and glorifying you and thanking you for your great life, but also thanking you for your your sacrificial death and for the power of your resurrection that has given us life. Both your humanity and your divinity We celebrate today, giving thanks. And we want our lives to magnify you, Jesus. We want our lives in 2024 to be a year in which every aspect of our life magnifies your name, lifts you up, that we would make much of you, Jesus, in all that we do and say right where we live, work, and play. God, Jesus, that's what we want to do. And so now, Lord, as we come and we close this service, we we come doing it as a recommitment into the new year that our life would magnify your great life, Jesus, your great glory. So we come, Jesus, to magnify you. We come in your name to give you great glory. It's in the name above every name that we pray. Your name, Jesus. Amen.